you got a Bible with you this morning, open up to the book of John. We're in the Gospel of John, going through a verse-by-verse study of this incredible gospel, the Gospel of John. Today, we're going to be finishing up part two of a sermon I started last week entitled, Abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ, John 15. We'll read verses one through eight, and we'll jump right back into kind of where we left off. I'll give you a run and start of last week's message, and then we'll hit the new material as well together this morning. So abiding in Christ, John 15, starting at verse one. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're thankful for this passage of scripture that clearly points us to the desire that you have that every Christian would be abiding in you. And by abiding in you, we would be bearing much fruit. So help us today as we examine this passage again, that you would show us what you want us to learn so that we can live like you want us to live. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, out of Jesus's uh, parables and out of all of his teaching and out of the Sermon on the Mount, all the teachings that we have in the New Testament, I, I would beg to say that one of the most vivid and powerful illustrations of the believer's relationship with Christ is this very picture, this illustration of Jesus being the true vine. Jesus is the true vine. We are called to be the branches. And we looked last week at how before we get to looking at how Jesus is the true vine, I think there's a little bit of a background going on here about being reminded of how Israel was the original vine. Last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 5, and we learned that Israel was actually a choice vine that the Lord had planted in his vineyard. And he had dug around it and made the ground fertile. And he had built a watchtower in the midst of that vineyard to protect the vine. And God had even hewed out a wine vat looking for Israel to bear and yield grapes. But do you know what Israel did? Last week, we looked at, again, Isaiah 5, verse 4. They wandered away from God. And so Isaiah said in Isaiah 5, 4, What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it when I looked for it to yield grapes Why did it yield wild grapes? You see, Israel was supposed to be this precious vine of God, and Israel was supposed to bear grapes and produce for God, but Israel struggled with idolatry, and they struggled with harlotry, and they struggled with pride, and instead of yielding good grapes, it yielded wild grapes. And so what will God do but judge that vineyard? And what will God do but remove that hedge surrounding Israel and it will be devoured? And so God broke down its wall and it was trampled down. The nation of Israel struggled with obedience just as you and I struggle with obedience today. Israel was tempted and they fell into an external religiosity which led to complacency and spiritual apathy. So God said, To Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 2.21, I planted you a choice vine, wholly of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and have become a wild vine? And so as a vine, Israel was not thriving. It was not flourishing. It had become degenerate, which means that it had turned aside or departed. 
Israel had become like a wild vine, which means that it was a foreign or an alien vine. Israel was no longer abiding in God. Israel had turned away from God. Israel was drying up and was all but gone. And this is no different than maybe you or I having a bad tooth. Oftentimes, a bad tooth due to infection and disease is no longer receiving good blood flow from the jaw. It is no longer abiding in a healthy relationship with the rest of the body, and it may be decaying because it's not getting that proper blood supply. So you go to the dentist, and they may have to pull it out. They may even have to do a root canal, which we all know about and love. How many root canals do we have in here this morning? There you go. Then you'll never forget that, right? And the idea is you got to dig the whole root out of all that decay and tissue out of your body. And when they pull that tooth out and they pull that root out, you know what they do with it? They stick it in the trash because it's no good for anything anymore. This is no different than a patient that is beginning to develop gangrene. And one of their limbs and extremities begins to have poor blood flow, oftentimes due to advanced diabetes that they've been struggling with for years. And the leg is no longer abiding in a healthy relationship with the body receiving proper blood supply. And sometimes the only, the only option that you have at that point is to amputate the leg. I'll never forget when I was a physician's assistant doing a rotation in general surgery, we had to do one of these amputations above the knee. And I'll just never forget assisting in that surgery, taking the saw on one hand while the surgeon had the saw on the other end, and we're cutting through the femur. We get through the femur, sever this leg. The surgeon looks at me with a smile, and he says, hey, Adam, take this leg, and I want you to take it over to the room and throw it in the trash. And I'm like, all right. You know, I take the leg, you know, I'm walking over here, and I'm like, it's the weirdest feeling in the world, you know, but what good is a decayed tooth? And what good is a rotten leg? I mean, technically, you're supposed to send that stuff to pathology, and they look at it, and they put it in the leg graveyard somewhere. But in the, in the OR, you're just like tossing it in what would be equivalent to the trash. Here's what we're saying. Degenerate branches, dead teeth, and diseased appendages, they all have to be cut out. They all have to be cut off, and they all have to be thrown away. But here in John 15, we see Jesus is going to do something that Israel could not. Jesus will succeed where Israel failed. Jesus will sustain true believers in the faith while the stem of Judaism was only able to yield wild grapes. Branches depend on the vine for their life. They depend on the vine to receive water and nutrients so that they can bear fruit. And if you cut away a branch from the vine, it has no way to thrive or to even survive. You see, the vine is rooted in the soil, and the vine produces nourishment, which is essential for the growth and maintenance of life. And if the branch is severed, there is no lifeline. If the branch is disconnected, there is no way for it to continue to live. And if the branch is cut off, it will die. The purpose of a grapevine is to grow grapes, and the purpose of the branch is to bear fruit. And any good farmer knows that if the branches are not bearing fruit, then they have to go. You cannot have fruitless branches taking viable organic nutrients away from the fruit-bearing branches. Therefore, the branches that are not bearing fruit will be cut off. And the problem is not with the vine, but it's with the branch itself. The branch could be diseased. The branch could be rotten. The branch could already be dead. But the branch that is bearing fruit is a branch that is abiding. The branch that is connected to the vine, and that vine is connected to that branch. And abiding in Christ means having a life-giving connection to Him. Abiding in the vine means that we're totally dependent on Jesus. Abiding in the vine means that we are continuing day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, and even second by second, we're depending on Christ to be our lifeline. And so we're going to look at these three headings that we began last week as we continue to learn what Jesus meant when he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Just the first part, a little bit of a review. Jesus is the vine. We've already discussed A, Israel was the original vine. At juxtaposed to that is Jesus, B in your outline, is the true vine. I mean, here we are reading 
Actually, we're, we're looking at the seventh of the seven I am statements of Christ in the Gospel of John. And Jesus uses these seven I am statements to boldly say that he is divine. Jesus is saying that he is of the same substance as the Father. Jesus is saying that he is equal with God. Just like when Moses saw the burning bush experience and he says, Who are you, Lord? What is your name? And Yahweh said to him, I am that I am. That when Jesus shows up in the New Testament and he gives us these seven, I am this, I am that, I'm the bread of life and the light of the world and the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd and I am the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth and the life. And then here in John 15, 1, I am the true vine, Jesus is saying that he is God, he is God in the flesh, that he's worthy of our worship, that he's worthy of all of our praise. And Jesus is saying that by being attached to him, the true vine, that his life flows into us. And through this relationship, God channels his grace and he grants us repentance and faith. And those who have been made alive now walk with Christ and now we bear the fruit of the Spirit. And from all of this, we see that Jesus is true. It says, I am the true vine. He's real. He's genuine. He's not a type He's not a symbol. He's the real thing. And knowing this should make you want to come to him today. Knowing this should say, you know what? I want Jesus to be my wonderful counselor today. Knowing this should make you say, I want him to be my shepherd. I want him to be my teacher. I want him to be the great physician of my soul. I want him to be my advocate. I want him to be my all in all. I want to worship Jesus. I just want to be close to him. And it's not good enough just to have osmosis. I want to be tied in to where all of that tissue, that vascular tissue is flowing into my heart and it's flowing into my life. And I want to bear fruit for my Lord. You know why? Because he's the true vine and you won't find it anywhere else. This world has nothing for you, but in Christ, you can find him to be the true vine. The second point of this message was simply this. Number two, God is the vine dresser. That second part of verse one, and my father is the vine dresser. A vine dresser is one who tills the soil. Thus, he is a farmer. The vine dresser is the vine grower. The vine dresser is responsible for planting and fertilizing and watering the vine. The vine dresser also prunes and he trains and he cultivates the vine. The vine dresser protects the vine from wild animals animals and from thorns. The vine dresser does everything that he can to ensure the success and the prosperity of the vine. Therefore, it is only right that the vine dresser is the one who harvests the fruit and appropriates the dividends however he chooses. And it's also only right that the vine dresser takes an axe or he takes some clippers and he cuts off the branches that bear no fruit. That's exactly what God does as we now look at our third heading this morning about how the branches, so if we say the vine is Christ, the vine dresser is God the Father, then the question obviously is, well, then who are the branches? And I'm saying to you, number three, the branches are individuals in the visible church are the branches. And here's what I mean by that. Not everybody in church is a true branch that bears fruit. In church, there are branches that are attached to the vine that bear no fruit of all. And so just because you're in church doesn't mean you're an automatic fruit-bearing branch. Let me explain that. There's two types of branches. A, in your outline, says branches that bear no fruit. What happens to these branches? Well, these branches are taken away. Notice how it says, again, in verse 2, it says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. If you skip down to verse 6, we also read this. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And so there are some branches that are taken away. Not every branch in the vine bears fruit. This simply means there are some branches that have an external attachment to the vine through association, but they have no internal flow of the saving and sanctifying grace of God. There is actually no life flowing from the vine into the branch that bears no fruit. And so what's to happen to them? Number two, the branches are not bearing fruit because they're not abiding. Jesus is very clear about how those who are associated with the church but they're not bearing fruit, will be cut away. 
because they're not abiding. And how is it that we'll know who it is that is of God and not of God? Well, Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. A bad tree, Matthew 7, is a tree that is diseased and will bear bad fruit. It will bear thorns and it will bear thistles. In the end, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so these branches are taken away. These branches that are not bearing fruit are gathered up. And number three says these branches, they wither, they're gathered, and they're thrown into the fire. Again, Jesus makes it clear in this verse what will happen to the branch that bore no fruit. That branch will be taken. That branch will be cut off. That branch will be thrown away. It will wither and it will die. And it will be gathered with all of the other dried out dead branches. And they will be thrown into the fire and they will be burned. This idea of being associated with Christ, but not truly abiding in Christ, is common in the scriptures. Listen to how many times that this concept comes up. Those who are close to God, those who are close to the vine, those who are branches, but they're not bearing real fruit. We read about it all throughout the scriptures. There's the parable of the tares and the wheat. There's the bad fish that are thrown away. There are the goats who are condemned to eternal punishment. There are those left standing outside when the head of the house shuts the door. There are the foolish virgins who were shut out of the wedding feast. There are the useless Slaves who bury their master's talent into the ground. There are the apostates who eventually leave the fellowship of the believers. There are those who will continue to sin willfully even after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And there are those who will think that they're on their way to heaven, but they're actually on the broad path that leads to destruction. Do you understand this morning, church, just because you're here doesn't mean you're safe. Just because you were raised in a Christian family doesn't mean you're safe. Just because you read your Bible on occasion doesn't mean that you're a true branch. All the branches that do not bear fruit will be thrown into the fire. This is clearly a picture of hell. All of the people who claim to be attached to Christ but don't really know Christ, and so therefore they're not bearing the fruit of Christ, they will be gathered up and they will be thrown into hell. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, then I call you to repent. If you're here today and you're associated with the things of God, but you've never come to the end of yourself, you've never come to the end of your rope, you've never said, God, I need you. I repent of all of my sin. I believe that Jesus Christ is your son, and I believe that he lived a perfect life, and I believe he died on the cross, and I believe he was raised from the dead, and I repent And I believe and I ask you to save me and to fill me and to dwell in me and to help me. If you've never done that today, then I call you on this day to come to Christ, to be born again, to put all your faith in him, to know that he loves you and he cares for you and he sent his son to die on a cross for you because otherwise you're a branch that doesn't bear fruit. The second type of branch that we're looking at this morning, and that's the kind of branch that does bear fruit. And even though those branches are going to bear fruit, you're not going to like number one, which is these branches will be what? Sounds like it's just hard for you to say that. These branches will be what? They'll be what? Pruned. The branches that bear fruit will be pruned. Second part of verse two, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now, these branches will be pruned. Let me talk to you a little bit about why. Here's your first blank, maybe, if you're taking notes. A says, to help us grow in our faith. Why is it that we need to be pruned? Because God wants to help us grow in our faith. Now, the branches that do not bear fruit are taken away, but the branches that bear fruit are pruned. Why? So that, into verse 2, they may bear more fruit. To prune means to remove the superfluous growth from a plant. It means to cut back productive branches so they can produce even better. If the branches of a grapevine are not pruned every year, they will grow long and leafy, and they will be filled with foliage, but they will not have much fruit. And if the goal is to bear fruit, then you don't want a lot of leaves. 
You want a lot of produce. And so you got to cut back that vine every year to get rid of the extra foliage so that that year you have a crop of good fruit. And I believe that the way that God prunes us is through the trials that he brings into our lives. And we were reminded last week of how trials are given to us by God to refine our faith. Trials are used by God to produce in us endurance, character, and hope. And you may think that pruning hurts, but pruning is there to actually help you. God designs the pruning, and he does the pruning in order to help you bear more fruit. Pruning helps remind us about the things that really matter in life. And so we are pruned so that we can grow stronger. We're also pruned, B in your outline says, to keep us from becoming conceited. To keep us from becoming conceited, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul had a trial. Paul had a thorn. Paul had a difficulty in his life. And he talks about it in 2 Corinthians 12. And he gives us some really good theology when he says this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited. You see, it's easy for Christians to become conceited. It's easy for Christians to say, all right, I'm doing okay. Life's going pretty good. I've trusted in God. Nothing can harm me now. Satan has no hold on me. And if we're not careful, we can get a little cocky and we can get a little too big for our britches, so to speak. We can be conceited. And so to keep me, Paul says, from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me and to keep me from becoming conceited. There was some challenge Paul had in his life. Some people say this was some type of physical problem that he had. Some say it's a besetting sin of temptation. Others say that it was the Corinthian people who never really submitted to and followed Paul's apostleship without him explaining it to the nth degree. Whatever your view on that is, it was a thorn. And it was a problem for Paul, and he wanted it gone. And yet he says at the beginning of verse 7 and at the end of verse 7 that God gave that to him. It was a messenger of Satan in the sense of God's sovereign even over that to keep Paul from becoming conceited. Verse 8, Paul said three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What a perspective Paul has here as he's learning that even though he's pleading with God to take this away, that God wants to keep bearing down this thorn in his flesh in a way that would keep Paul humble. And you know what God's saying to him? He's saying, hey, I'm enough. You don't have to get rid of the thorn in order to have a faithful walk with God. What you've got to do is bear the thorn, bear the trial, bear the difficulty, and at the same time, you're looking to God, and you're saying, God, I need you today, and if you don't help me today, I won't make it today. I need the power of Christ resting on me. In verse 10, he then says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, pruning is a good thing. It helps us to grow. It keeps us from becoming conceited. And one last thing that we could say here is that pruning is there to help show us his love for us. It's there to help show us his love for us. You know what? Pruning shows us what really matters. You know what doesn't matter? Wood, hay, and stubble. It doesn't matter. You know what does matter in 1 Corinthians 3.12? Gold silver, and precious stones. In other words, God's saying, I love you so much, I'm going to root out everything out of your life that doesn't really matter because you got too much clutter. You need to send out some of it to self-storage. You need to get some of it out of your life. You need to know that I love you. So a loving father, we're showing again part of the pruning, I believe would be the disciplining of the loving father that we have to us, just like a loving father cares for his son. Turn to Hebrews 12. I know you know the passage, but just look at it with me, if you will. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, just like a loving father will show his love in a tough way to a son that he loves, a loving father will graciously and kindly confront him. 
And that's what our God does. Hebrews 12, verse 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. We could say, do not regard lightly the pruning of the Lord. Don't regard lightly the trials that God brings into our life. Don't regard that lightly. That's something God's doing. He's he's doing that not to make us weary, but to reprove us because he loves us and he disciplines and he chastises every son whom he receives. Discipline is of the Lord and trials are of the Lord and pruning is of the Lord. And I hope that you will be thankful that when you're being pruned, when you're being disciplined, that it shows that God loves you. It shows that he cares for you. It shows that he's very aware of what's going on in your life and he cares about what you're doing and what you're thinking. And it's God's way of molding you and shaping you and conforming you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so branches that bear fruit are pruned. Branches that bear fruit also, number two, these branches must be continually abiding in the vine. We're looking now at verses three through five about how already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We mentioned briefly last week that verse 3 is a reference to the fact that there are already believers. That all the unbelievers were gone. Uh, Judas had already left. They're walking now from the upper room to probably the Garden of Gethsemane. And everybody that Jesus is speaking to in this moment are clean. They are pure. They are already abiding in him. And so verse 4 says, abide in me and I in you. This word abide, it appears 11 times in this chapter, 40 times in this gospel of John. It appears 27 additional times in John's other epistles. John cares a whole lot about the fruitfulness of the vine and us abiding in him. And so Jesus makes it clear in giving this command, abide in me, that Jesus is serious about this. This is an imperative. This is not an optional thing for the believer. Your life depends on it. It's not just about saying a prayer. Being a Christian is not just about making a profession without change. Being a Christian is about abiding. Yes, initially, it's all grace through repentance and faith. But as soon as you're born again, in that very second, you began to abide in Christ. The faith that saves you is the same faith that helps you walk day by day in obedience. And just like a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, neither can you abide in the vine. Remember, abiding means to remain. It means to continue. To abide means that you are united with Christ. To abide means that you are depending on Christ. To abide means that you are continuing every day with Christ. Basically, it means that every day you're looking to Jesus for your help and for your hope. Every day you are looking to Jesus for your joy and for your identity. Every day you're looking to Jesus for power over sin. You're looking to Jesus to keep you humble. You're looking to Jesus to help you serve him with a pure heart and a pure motive. And the good news is that God changes your heart when you come to Christ, and he changes your desire so that you can and you want to abide, and you want to continue. You don't want to start the faith and then quit. You don't start living for God and then stop. No, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That means that God is going to make sure that he's going to help you be a better husband and a better wife and a better example of what it means to be an ambassador of Christ. As you abide in Christ, he helps you accomplish everything that he calls you to do. And by the way, Jesus wants you to bear much fruit. Nowhere in this passage or in the Christian economy of faith Is there any such thing as it's the goal of Christians to do little, bear little? That is not a Christian concept. In this passage, he says, you know what? I want you to bear much fruit. I want you to abide in the vine that pours into us water and nutrients so that we can bear much fruit. God is growing in you today vibrant, delicious, organic 
fruit. In Christ, there are no diseases, there are no aphids, and there is no blight. In Christ, there are no pests, there is no fruit-eating birds, and there are no worms. Your fruit is genetically engineered by God. You have the pesticide of the Holy Spirit. All right, you have the irrigation of the word of God watering in your soul every day. And in this passage, there is a progression of bearing fruit, then being pruned so that you can bear more fruit. And now in verse five, that you can bear much fruit, bearing fruit, bearing much fruit, bearing, mu- uh, bearing more fruit, and then bearing much fruit. And so let's talk for a moment here about what is it that this fruit actually is? I mean, you may be tempted to think that fruit is equivalent with outward success. Does popularity in the evangelical world equal spiritual fruit? And the answer is no. Does the size of your church or your ministry equal spiritual fruit? And the answer is no. Does approval from sports stars and celebrities equal spiritual fruit? And the answer is no. Does being an author of a Christian book or being a conference speaker or being interviewed on TV equal spiritual fruit? And the answer is no. That's all external. That that doesn't mean anything to God. If your heart's not right and you're not exalting Christ, listen to me, you can't buy fruit from someone else. You have to grow your own which means it's not instant. It's a process that happens over time. In fact, a lot of the fruit trees that we plant around here, I've been told, take up to three growing seasons before you really get a good return. Now, I've already told you, I believe that you could start bearing fruit immediately as a Christian, but as a Christian, as you mature, you're going to bear more fruit and more fruit as you continue to grow and abide. You cannot manufacture fake fruit. We are not talking about wax fruit here. Fruit is not just about external actions. It's about an internal attitude of abiding in Christ and obeying his word. And so you can't borrow someone else's fruit. We're talking about real spiritual fruit. So what does the Bible teach that is? Let me give you 10. 10 types of fruit that we see in the Bible. Number one, the fruit of the Spirit. You know that one already. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what's supposed to be in your life, friend. Not just in your pastor's life, not just in your elder's life, not in your small group leader's life, not just in Jesus's life. Whoever you look up to as a spiritual leader, that's supposed to be in your life. You are to be living that out every moment of every day, and those all talk about issues of the attitude attitudes of the heart, that you could be doing all these externals, but if you don't have these internal things going on in your heart in that moment, then you're not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is a transformed attitude. It changes the way you talk, and it changes the way you live, and every born-again believer has the ability and the power of the Holy Spirit to bear fruit like this. It's an amazing truth that there's no such thing as a super-Christian All of us as Christians are abiding and bearing fruit exactly where the Lord has placed you. Number two, another type of fruit we see is the fruit of praise offered to God. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. When we worship God with praise from a sincere heart, that is spiritual fruit. That's offering up a sacrifice of praise. That's what this verse says is the fruit of our lips. When we acknowledge God's name and God's power and God's sovereign rule and his majesty, that is spiritual fruit. When we sing about the excellencies of his name and the worthiness of his character and the extravagance of his love. That is spiritual fruit being exhibited in our lives. Another fruit would be, number three, the fruit of sacrificially giving to the Lord. Romans 15, 28, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Now, this is Paul telling us of the financial gift that was for the Jerusalem church. When it says what was collected, that's actually the word for fruit. 
Some of the translations will say when he basically received the fruit of their giving. So we understand here that this shows that the fruit of believers is genuine love and gratitude for the church. It says it even more clear in Philippians 4.17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Here, Paul is talking about how the Philippians were giving as unto the Lord, which means they were storing up for themselves treasure in heaven. There would be added to their account eternal reward. And when you give to the Lord with the right heart, that is called in the Bible, spiritual fruit. Number four, the fruit of keeping with repentance. Matthew chapter three, verse eight, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus calls us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This means that if you have really repented and if you have really turned from your sin and turned to God, then there ought to be evidences of that in your life. And repentance is a gift of God and it is the fruit of every true Christian. Just means this, Christians repent and they walk with God and they do it every day. And they show that when they repent, there's a change in what they do and in how they act and in how they think. And if someone says they've repented, but their life continues the same with no change, that's not the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance is saying, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And I repent and I'm asking you to help me to never live like that again, to never do that again. And I can't do it without your help. Lord, fill me with self-control so that I can walk in accordance with your word. And so Christians repent and they believe in order that they could walk and abide in him every day. That's part of the fruit that we're talking about. Number five, the fruit of a transformed heart. Matthew 13, verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 and another 30. Well, you know that's Jesus teaching on the parable of the soils about a farmer who sowed seed. And some of that seed fell on the path, and the evil one came and snatched it away. And some of the seed fell on rocky ground. And this person received the word at first because uh, they were excited, but they, they weren't really rooted in Christ. And so when the trials came, he fell away. And some of the seed was sown among thorns. And because of the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, the plant got choked out and proved to be unfruitful. But... There was some seed that fell on good soil, and these soils received the gospel. And this is describing a heart that comes to Christ, and this heart was totally transformed. This heart of stone became a heart of flesh, and through transformation began to bear fruit according to the opportunity and to the ability that God provided. Another mention of fruit in the Bible would be number six, the fruit of light shining in the darkness. Ephesians 5, 7 through 9, therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. And so there we see a picture of fruit. It's the fruit of light. There is the darkness of this world and there is the light of Christ. And before you were a Christian, you walked in the darkness of this world. You pursued the sinful desires of your wicked heart. But once your heart was transformed, you began to walk as children of light. And what is the fruit of light? It's all that is good in God, all that is right in God, all that is true in God. This is the fruit of the light of God that is now shining in the heart of every believer for the world to see. Another fruit, number seven, is the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter one, verse nine through 11 Paul says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so, and, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In this context, we're learning that the fruit of righteousness is Christ's righteousness in you. You have no righteousness of your own, but Christ's righteousness is imputed. That means it's given to your account by faith. This righteousness saves you and it leads you and it fills you with wisdom and discernment to be pure and blameless. And every Christian 
is filled with the fruit of the righteousness of Christ. We are not holy. He makes us holy. We are not pure. He makes us pure. We are not blameless. He makes us blameless because of the fruit of the righteousness of Christ. Another fruit would be, number eight, the fruit of peace in being trained by righteousness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Earlier, we saw how part of the pruning of the vine includes God's loving discipline. And here's where we see the result of that loving discipline, even though it's painful and unpleasant at the moment, yet we know it's the correction that we need. We need to be trained. We need to be reproved. We need to be growing and changing so that we can then receive the peaceful fruit of righteousness by accepting God's discipline and not fighting against it. I mean, I just think a picture of that is when you had your little one and maybe out of love, you were patiently disciplining your child and they're fighting and they're resisting and they're bowing and they're, you know, doing whatever they can to flinch. And then finally, as you're just lovingly explaining what you're doing and doing, all of a sudden you just kind of feel them, uh, you know, I'm just going to receive it because they know they got what's coming to them, right? And you know, you're going to give them what's coming to them kindly patiently, lovingly, and then it leads away from rebellion to the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And when you and I, as Christian adults, when we're fighting against God and we're trying to defend ourselves against our conscience and we're running from God, then our soul is a mess. And yet when we just finally give in and say, God, I accept it. I was wrong. You're right. Your word is the light. Your way is better than my way. And we just give in. There's this peace that enters our heart that we know that that we can just follow God. He loves us. He's disciplining us because he loves us. And when we confess our sins, we know he throws our sins as far as the east is from the west. So let him do it. Don't be like that rebellious kid who's just hanging on, gritting your teeth, making your heart harder. No, no, no. Just say, God, bring it. I need it in my life, Lord. I love you, Lord. Thank you for loving me. And if this hurts but it's also helping, and I want to be helped. Next, we also see the fruit of walking in good works, Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So we're to be bearing fruit in every good work, which means that as you do what you do, you do it for God. This starts with you doing what you do as a Christian, and as you are knowing God and walking with God, you're increasing in that knowledge of God, and it affects your attitude, and it affects your actions, and you're maturing in your faith, which means that you're bearing true spiritual fruit in your actions because your heart and your motive is to do what you do for God. And so when you're walking with the Lord in a worthy manner, then you are being pleasing to Him, and you're bearing fruit. All the good works that you do in that sense, are not as filthy rags, because in that sense, it's an act of service to God. It's a, it's a beautiful act of worship to God. He's prepared those works beforehand, Ephesians 2.10 says, that you'll walk in them. And so part of walking in those good works is walking in good fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit uh, that we're talking about here, bearing fruit, is also just doing good works, doing good works for the right heart and the right motive. Let me give you a final and a tenth way that we see God's word use fruit in the scripture. Number 10, the fruit of the harvest. The fruit of the harvest of these converts that come to the gospel when Jesus was evangelizing the woman at the well in Samaria, John 4, 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. This verse, again, with Jesus evangelizing the woman at the well there in Samaria, she was repenting of her sins, and she is now partaking of the living water that only Jesus can give. She is now a true worshiper, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And Jesus revealed himself to her, and she saw Jesus for who he really was. What was Jesus doing? He's reaping fruit. He's saying that part of this is gathering fruit 
for eternal life. And this woman is one of those that he's about to gather for good things. He's gathering part of this fruit. Jesus was gathering fruit for eternal life. And God has called us to be workers of the harvest, that we should go far and we should go wide with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only are we to go far, and not only are we to go wide, but we're to go close and we are to go narrow. You know, we talk as a church about our missionaries all over the world, and we're so happy for them. We just gave a generous gift. Thank you, by the way, for your giving for that uh, missions, uh, Christmas in October that we did. We were able to give a generous gift that will be going out to each one of our missionaries. But not only are we to go far and wide, we're to go close and narrow. And what I mean by that is your neighbor next door. And that person that you work with at work, and that classmate that's in your class, and that person that's on your ball team, and that person that's in your dance class, you have the opportunity to go to each individual that you're with and to live life on mission. I mean, you understand that most of us in this room have never been to a foreign country to tell somebody about Jesus. And I'm saying you don't have to, to obey this verse. To obey this verse, you can witness to your neighbor, to anybody that's around you, every person you come in contact with every day, big or small, popular or unknown, rich or poor, old or young, black or white, Lakers fan or Clippers fan. They all need Jesus, right? Every last person in Santa Clarita needs Jesus. So listen to me. As a church, don't you want to be part of the harvest of those gathering fruit? You work for God. You belong to him. We're to be gathering fruit. And I'm praying that God would do, bring a revival in our church. You know that? We, me and the elders pray every time we pray to God, would you just increase the fruit of this church? Would you increase the passion of this church? That individuals in this church would be so passionate about reaching their neighbors and reaching out with the gospel. One of the funnest things that we do as an elder meeting when we sit and have dinner together is just various elders will talk about witnessing conversations they had this week. Jim will tell me about somebody he witnessed to at work. Somebody else will tell me about a conversation they had. You know, Dr. Barrick will talk about reaching his neighbor and all the people lost in the Grand Canyon. You know, it's like wherever they are, uh, we are trying to be faithful to talk to people about Jesus. I want you to join us, right? I mean, we get to be a part of gathering the fruit of the harvest. All of these are types of fruit that show what a branch does. When a branch is truly abiding in the vine, these are the types of fruit that we're to bear. Well, one last point here, number three, the branches prove to be faithful. The branches prove to be faithful, verses seven and eight. If you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. These branches prove to be faithful. These are, there there are great benefits to abiding in Christ. When you abide in Christ, you have assurance of your salvation. When you abide in Christ, you have ability to bear more fruit. When you abide in Christ, you have confidence in your prayers being answered. I mean, here in verse 7, Jesus does not say he will grant everyone's wishes whether or not they abide. What does verse 7 say? It says, if, if you abide in me. It's the same concept when Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, it will be given unto you. There's no just blanket statement, ask for whatever you want, and it's all given to you. No, James says it's the, the prayers of a righteous man that availeth much. And so what we're understanding here is that we need to be abiding if you want God to answer your prayers. You're saying, Adam, are only Christians who are walking in God's will going to have their prayers answered? Well, this is certainly where the Bible pushes us. I mean, the Bible does say in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would have not listened. So it's basically like that Psalm is saying, if you have some secret sin, some pet sin, some unrepentant sin in your life that you're going to hold on to because you would rather have it than Jesus, then he's saying, then, then God doesn't listen. He's not hearing you because you're lost. It's James 4.3. You ask and do not receive 
because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Listen to me. Don't expect your prayers to be answered if you're not walking in obedience and in pure motives from the heart. And not only that, but here in verse 8 we see Jesus says that it is by this that the Father will be glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How do you prove to be a disciple? Is it by what you say or is it by what you do? You know, I mean, my pastor used to say, words come a dime a dozen. Lots of people say they love Jesus. But if they're not walking with him, like we've looked at in John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I'm not saying that you're saved by showing. You're saved by faith alone and Christ alone, period. But if you are saved by grace alone in Jesus Christ, then you will show it. It's impossible not to. Matthew 5.16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Can those around you see your good works if you're not showing them? Is your light shining in your neighborhood? Is your light shining in your school? Is your light shining in your place of work? Is this church shining as we seek to honor Jesus Christ together? Again, you prove that you are genuine and have a genuine discipleship relationship when you're genuinely walking with him. And the fruit that you and I are to bear is the fruit of the Spirit, because any other fruit is a fruit that does not honor God. So let me ask you this morning, church, are you just attached to the vine externally, or are you abiding in the vine with every fiber of your being? If you are a branch that bears fruit, are you willing to be pruned in areas where God wants to grow you? Do you trust God to prune you in the right spot and in the right way? Do you want to bear fruit? If we abide in Christ, then he abides in us, then we will bear much fruit. But apart from him, we can do nothing. So I'm asking you, church, examine yourself. Have others examine you. See whether or not the things that you're doing in your life equal these 10 examples of fruit given in the scripture that we would walk in this way as we seek to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and to always be abiding in the vine. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look again at this passage of John 15. And Lord, it can be a scary passage at times when we think about these branches being cut off and thrown into the fire. And it can be a little bit of a difficult passage when we think about the pruning that takes place in the life of every believer. But I pray that today, God, that we would just focus as well on this idea of abiding, that we see here the beauty of you bringing us into relationship with you and that you wanting to prune us and to shape us and to mold us into the type of branches that would bear much fruit. God, we want to be a church that bears 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold for you. God, we want to be a church that finds our joy and our identity and our attitude constantly encouraged. And we see from this passage this morning, it all comes from abiding. We want to abide in you. We want to remain in you and continue with you and depend upon you. And so do a work in our hearts as we think about this and as we prepare our hearts for communion, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.